Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of PMR Report. My name is Dikran Altunian, and I am a physical medicine and rehabilitation resident at UT McGovern Medical School in Houston, Texas. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Claire Halsbach, a professor of the Department of Neurobiology and Anatomy at the McGovern Medical School. Today's topic is on persistent inflammation and pain after spinal cord trauma. Dr. Halsbach, welcome. Oh, you're quite welcome. Um, thank you for the nice introduction. And um, I guess I respond to questions. Right. So yeah. uh, before we do that, I'll give a little history so the audience knows of my background. Please. I have a PhD in neuroscience mm -hmm. and I was awarded an NIH postdoctoral fellowship to study spinal cord injury at UTMB, the University of Texas Medical Branch, uh, with Dick Kagashaw and uh, Bill Willis was there. The group there focused on spinal cord and is a world authority on pain mechanisms. So when I first got to UTMB, I was interested in spinal cord regeneration, but that targeted approach soon changed to focus on pain, particularly neuropathic pain that many people with spinal cord injury suffer the rest of their lives. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, before we get into the topic, um, you did mention uh, about um, Mission Connect Project, the continuum of recovery for spinal cord injury and brain injury. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Okay. It's my pleasure. Mission Connect uh, began as a Gulf Coast consortium of basic scientists and clinicians that are interested in improving recovery after spinal cord injury and brain injury. It seemed to me reasonable in the early um, 80s that one laboratory, my laboratory alone, was not going to make headway as fast as I would have liked in improving recovery for people with spinal cord injury. That a better way would be to combine expertise with with researchers in the field as well as clinicians that actually treat people um, in a continuum of care from the emergency medical field mm -hmm. to the in-hospital stay to the uh, post-hospital rehabilitation, the whole continuum of care. So I founded Mission Connect with Guy Clifton of, I was at UTMB at the mm -hmm. time, with. Guy Clifton, who was Chief of Neurosurgery at UT Health Science Center, now McGovern Medical School, and Bob Grossman, who uh, was Chief of Neurosurgery at Baylor. Mm -hmm. 
So we began with about five members and we now have 60 research scientists and clinicians that are all focused on recovery and spinal cord injury and brain injury. That's amazing. It is yeah. amazing. And that is absolutely amazing. Uh, so you mentioned researchers uh, and uh, clinicians. Uh, as far as clinicians go, what specific specialties are part of the um, committee? So um, in terms of the clinical people that are interested, we yeah. have neurosurgeons, uh -huh. we have uh, PM&R, yeah. um, we have neurologists that are interested, and anesthesiologists, um, a variety of clinicians, and they help focus the basic researchers on therapeutic windows that can be applied to people. For example, before Mission Connect, the basic scientists were interested in mechanisms that happen five minutes after injury, mm -hmm. 15 minutes after injury, in terms of translation mm -hmm. from an animal model to a uh, patient model, it's not tenable. We can't get to a person that has had brain injury or spinal cord injury five minutes after injury or 15 minutes after injury. So they've helped us I, I'm a basic scientist. They've mm -hmm. helped us think in broader terms mm -hmm. on realistic therapeutical, therapeutic windows of intervention that will be useful for improved recovery. Right. That's great. And as far as researchers, um, uh, the types of researchers that are part of the group as well. So neuroscientists, engineers. So, yes, we have yeah. neuroscientists as well as engineers. We mm -hmm. have uh, partnerships with Methodist and U of H and the robotics, which is mm -hmm. advertised a lot here mm -hmm. in the Houston area. Right. We have Rice University participants that are interested in upper extremity robotics to help people that are tetraplegic recover uh, some function in terms of their upper extremity. So uh, we have biochemists, we have neurophysiologists, we have uh, behavioralists, we have a whole variety. Molecular biologists, mm -hmm. stem cell is a huge area that we're interested in because of the, once we can control what stem cells do when we put them in the body, that mm -hmm. offers an opportunity for therapeutic improvements in people, not only with spinal cord injury, but with brain injury as well. Right, that's a really hot topic right now as well. Very hot. Yeah, so. Uh, so Going into uh, the topic for today, um, I have, since I started my residency program here at UT, I've always been interested on how pain affects overall function, especially in spinal cord injury patients. So this uh, lecture today was very interesting to me as well. Um, you touched on some of the other research efforts in spinal cord injury recovery and what was striking to me uh, from your uh, research was that 66% of the pain in spinal cord injury um, patients, 66% um, of spinal cord injury patients had pain in the acute phase, in the subacute, in the chronic phase and, uh, and the fact that it's not a recognized complication in these patient populations. Why do you think that is? 
Um, I, I think that people in the um, physical rehabilitation side are very aware of what we call neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain is pain that is not uh, useful. It's dysfunctional pain. Pain is an important um, stimulus for us. For example, if we put our finger in a fire, it hurts, so we know not to do that. So it's very useful to know what's painful and what's not in the normal situation. In spinal cord injury, we have pain circuits that are hyper-excitable hyper that become dysfunctional. So non-painful stimuli become painful. For example, if I hug someone, that's usually, it should be an a pleasant experience for someone. Mm -hmm. Their endorphins go up, they have a sense of well-being. If you do that to a person that has spinal cord injury, they experience um, what we call allodynia. The non-noxious stimuli of hugging them becomes very painful and starts shooting electric-like uh, stimuli up and down their body. And so they avoid being hugged, which is, uh, you know, it's a very sad state in right. terms of uh, your emotional relationships with your loved ones. If you can't even get a hug without yeah. exacerbating this neuropathic pain, which, by the way, people that have neuropathic pain, and it's not just spinal cord injured people, mm -hmm. people with disc herniations and tumors and so right. forth, brain injured people, this neuropathic pain is present all the time in, mm -hmm. at low levels and then it can exacerbate spontaneously and get worse and it cycles throughout the day. So it's a very unfortunate consequence of a trauma to the central nervous system and in the case of a disc herniation to the peripheral nervous system. That has a lot of psychosocial implications, quality of life, um, implications. It's it's a uh, yeah. It's it's a uh, it's a very complicated uh, process. It's very debilitating. Yeah. You can imagine how difficult it is to focus on a task at hand mm -hmm. normally because you're distracted by distractors, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then if you're suffering this neuropathic pain, it's almost impossible to carry on with daily activities because yeah. it's right. it's so over encompassing that. Um, you stop whatever you're doing until it subsides again, and then you can get on with your activity. Right. Uh, so uh, you did touch on, um, during the lecture, you touched on many mechanisms for central um, sensitization. Um, can you br briefly touch on the different components of neuropathic pain? Um, okay. So central sensitization is a mechanism that we use and what that means is that neurons in the spinal cord, it could be anywhere actually, are more um, excitable or hyper, I use the term hyper excitable right. mm -hmm. uh, normally. I mean, sorry, after, after injury, they're hyper excitable forever. Mm -hmm. Whereas prior to injury, these cells would just respond to stimuli. For example, when you stuck your finger in a fire, then they would start firing the spinal cord, and then it'd go up to your brain, and mm -hmm. you would realize that hurts, mm -hmm. and you would pull your finger out. In people that have spinal cord injury, 
the circuit is reset so you have hyperexcitability, which we call central sensitization. Um, and the second part of your question was the mechanisms. Right. The mechanisms right. that contribute to central sensitization are many. The, uh, it, the mechanisms are based on the changeability of not only nerve fibers in the spinal cord, but also molecules that are called receptors and molecules that are called transmitters. So let's go with regard to the changes, the neuroanatomic changes. Pain fibers, we now know, sprout in the spinal cord in response to injury. Now, one pain fiber coming in, let's make it simple, will have one contact on a neuron mm -hmm. in the spinal cord. After injury, the, the fiber now sprouts, and instead of one contact, it has multiple contacts and let's keep it simple, mm -hmm. on the same cell. Mm -hmm. So an incoming um, electrical signal, if you will, will be amplified onto that nerve cell. So that's one mechanism that the incoming fibers amplify what was normally a non-noxious stimuli, stimuli, becomes very noxious. A second mechanism is the neurons in the spinal cord are hyper-excitable without any incoming stimuli. And we targeted that mechanism. We found out that um, particular receptors, and we call them glutamate receptors mm -hmm. and pro-inflammatory cytokine receptors, are not only increased in number, but they are permanently activated, which leads to these neurons in the spinal cord being hyper-excitable forever. Then, in addition, spinal cord injury results in a loss of neurons that provide inhibition mm -hmm. to this pain circuit. So normally, we don't, we don't experience this neuropathic pain. And for my listeners, neuropathic pain feels like electrical shocks and it's continuous electrical shocks mm -hmm. that are, are low for a while and then get really increased in their activity so that you lose focus of what you're doing in your daily activity. So um, these receptors are permanently activated and these neurons contribute to that electrical electric shock stimulation because of the pathway that they're in. And this perception goes all the way to the, the brain, the cortex, and so you perceive this as a very noxious or annoying, it's mm -hmm. beyond annoying actually, it's, mm -hmm. it inhibits your daily activities. Uh, and it's a very unfortunate consequence mm -hmm. of spinal cord injury. Right. Um, you also touched on um, a, uh, a therapeutic window after a spinal cord injury. So what would you say is um, a good therapeutic window for treating the inflammation, uh, the inflammatory process, and associated pain in spinal cord injury patients? What would be the best window for us to intervene? Okay, so... Um 
in terms of a therapeutic window, the pathophysiology post-spinal cord injury changes depending upon what time that you look. You have an acute um, window of opportunity where you have glutamate that's in excess in the extracellular space. So glutamate inhibitors would help that. Mm -hmm. um, Pro-inflammatory cytokines would help that uh, in the acute and what we call subacute which is a misnomer, it's really two weeks post-injury. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of interventions would work early on. Later, once you get into the chronic phase, the pro-inflammatory cytokines seem to be permanently, uh, or at least the receptors, permanently activated. So anything that would attenuate or inhibit those receptors would help. And we've looked at things like Intenercept, which is a TNF-alpha receptor inhibitor, mm -hmm. and Kineret, which is an IL-1 receptor inhibitor. And both of those were useful not only in uh, neuropathic pain for spinal cord injury, but we published a series in brain injury as well. Those were useful as well. Interesting. So, um, so the interleukin-1 receptor antagonists. So... Um, you already touched on it, and could you talk a little bit more about Kineret and what are some of the findings that you have seen with uh, Kineret right, so, in your research? Um, one of my philosophies in research is I don't accept money from drug companies because I don't want the perception that my research is swayed by a pharmaceutical company who has financial gain and interest in the, the outcome. But what I will do is collaborate and, and acquire, the, in this case, the Kenneret mm -hmm. um, at, a, at a cost that's reduced, mm -hmm. but I, I sign all sorts of documents that I have no financial interest in right. it. I don't, this is just a personal belief, I don't, mm -hmm have uh, patents, patents delay publication. If you go through a patent process, you can't publish your findings. And my philosophy is I want my findings available to the public as quickly as possible. So when Kenneret and Intenerocept became available mm -hmm. for rheumatoid arthritis, mm -hmm. actually a high school student in my lab said, why don't we try that? Mm -hmm. And Jennifer Yurka, was in my lab at the time and worked with Brian Haynes and looked at Intenerocept um, and Kineret later, but they began with a COX-2 inhibitor. Okay. And Vioxx uh, is the one that we were using at the time. It's mm. now been taken off the market, but um, in um, the patient population, so, so part of the problem is translating what we do in the animal model mm -hmm. to the patient population because the doses that we use in the animal model are very different than the doses that work in the patient population. Mm -hmm. And with regard to the Kenneret and Intenerocept, what um, we looked at the therapeutic window of both of those and they were months after injury, use, useful for months. Okay. And so we encourage, these are interventions that aren't going to hurt the people that are taking them. And it may relieve the pain if, if their mechanism is 
what we think it is, which is an upregulation and act, permanent activation of the, the pro-inflammatory cytokine receptors. Right. So I, I hope that answered your question. Right, yes, uh, it, it, it definitely did. And um, my follow-up question to that was, uh, this upregulation, what is the time frame? How long does this upregulation actually occur after, after a spinal cord injury, or does it ever stop? So we haven't done a uh, careful time course mm -hmm. of the IL-1 receptor. Mm -hmm. We do know that it's upregulated a month after injury, mm -hmm. and then we also know that some of the contributors that, for example, glial activation, both the astrocytic and the microglia activation, persist forever. Mm. We hypothesize that the receptor activation lasts forever. And we haven't looked forever, but as long as we've looked in animals, which is several months post-injury, mm -hmm. um, it's still been upregulated. So we suspect yeah. that in the people, it's a similar mechanism. Right, yeah. Hence why it's so important to treat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, as far as the animal model, um, it's it's uh, it's obviously it's it's very difficult to measure pain since pain is uh, mostly an emotional response. So um, what were some of the measures that that your lab has used um, for pain in the animal model? Yeah, that's a very good question. Because um, if you work with people, they may misrepresent their pain because there's financial gain to be had through lawyers and litigation. So people using people to measure pain is not useful. Animals can't lie, so that's the advantage. But we don't know what they're experiencing. So what we did was we use what clinical people use, which is a series of von Freiherrs that are calibrated at specific pressures. Mm. And uh, we like to use one that uh, is about a four millinewton strength. And on people, um, it feels like you're being tickled. It's certainly not noxious. Mm -hmm. When we test rats prior to spinal cord injury, it is certainly not noxious. They uh, ignore it. After spinal cord injury, for the first week or two, they ignore it. But after a while, after several weeks in rats, they begin behaving as if we've touched them or, or stimulated them with a safety pin. Mm -hmm. They withdraw their uh, paw and shake it and lick it as mm -hmm. if they've received a very noxious stimuli. Mm -hmm. So again, we don't know what they're experiencing is pain, mm -hmm. but we can certainly say that it was a noxious stimuli that was formerly non-noxious. So that's what we use as a measure mm -hmm. to see if they're experiencing a, and we call that process allodynia, when a formerly non-noxious stimuli is now noxious. So we use that as an indicator, and we test different pharmacologic agents. Uh, one of the most successful that we've used was gabapentin, mm -hmm. and we have found that it takes this abnormal noxious stimuli and reduces it to the non-noxious stimuli. 
Yeah, and and with gabapentin, we've actually um, in uh, during my residency program and my experience with uh, this patient population, it seems to be very effective. Um, it, it it does have side effects, of course, uh, with with sedation and and uh, um, some some cognitive effects as well. But as far as uh, its its effect on neuropathic pain, it's been uh, we use it quite often here as well. So gabapentin yeah. currently is given as an oral form, right. and um, we think that it would be best to perhaps set up a system of continuous delivery that's site-specific. Mm -hmm. For example, a pump, Metatronics okay. makes pump. Right, it's like an intrathecal Intrathecal indwelling catheter mm -hmm. so that you focus on the region of the spinal cord just rostral to the injury where we hypothesize it's like epilepsy, mm -hmm. but it's in the pain circuits. So it's a continuous hyperexcitable circuit. Mm -hmm. So if you can deliver gabapentin there, I, I would propose that you would not have the cognitive effects. Now right. gabapentin... Because there's increased concentration in that area. In that area. Yeah, right. So um, gabapentin given orally does affect cognitive mm -hmm. um, abilities. However, people that have spinal cord injury have difficulty sleeping. And if anybody's been sleep deprived, right. you know how that can affect your, your cognitive abilities. Right. So given before they go to bed will allow the, the person to have a good night's sleep, right. which is very useful. Definitely. And uh, in an inpatient setting, we, uh, we do that as well. And that actually increases their participation with therapies with the following day because they're able to get a good night's sleep, restful sleep, um, essentially pain-free sleep. So it's, it's uh, definitely something that we use quite often. Um, going back to, uh, to allodynia, uh, you touched on persistent pain and how that's a, uh, that's a learned phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And uh, you touched on how, how um, phosphorylated CREB is uh, a key transcription factor that is um, present in uh, the hippocampus for learning, memory, short-term, long-term. So um, can you touch a little bit more on, on that um, component of pain that, that you describe as learning? Okay, so when I talked about learning, I didn't mean like a psychological learning. Right. I meant at the cellular Correct. level, it, the mechanism for uh, neuropathic pain is similar to the same mechanism that the, the neurons in a place of our brain called the hippocampus, which is involved in learning and memory. It's the same mechanism that those neurons use for long-term changes in their excitability. Mm. In the pain neurons, as well as the neurons in the hippocampus, we see what's called a transcription factor. Now, this transcription factor is a gene that's upregulated, and this gene influences the upregulation of other proteins, which then have effects and in this case, in the pain field, on receptors on nerve cells in the pain circuits, these receptors then are activated dysfunctionally, mm -hmm. and so it contributes to hyperexcitability, a dysfunctional hyperexcitability in a circuit that should be normally quiet, and now is not. It's mm -hmm. it's hyperexcited. Right. So 
I hope I've explained that well. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, so what are some of the uh, future uh, research interests that you have uh, in the, the um, continuum of pain and inflammation? So um, I'm at the stage of my career where I'm interested in disseminating the information to the clinical population and currently my, my next target is I'm authoring a book with Christine saying and we're asking people in the field to contribute to it so that we can get a broad view of the different mechanisms involved in developing neuropathic pain. One of my goals has been to disseminate information to the public as quickly as possible because no one person can um, help neuropathic pain in everyone. People are wired differently and what works for me may not work for you, for example, in my pain. There are some commonalities, things like gabapentin work. We found also that GABA, uh, not only gabapentin but baclofen, which is given as an intrathecal pump for spasticity. Mm -hmm. It's a GABA-B agonist. And what that does is it inhibits pain circuits, and it's very useful for what we call off-label use in neuropathic pain. Uh, so those sorts of things, once they get out in the public, if we have an agent that's FDA-approved, mm -hmm. it can be used off-label if clinicians have enough confidence to try it in patients. And obviously, it's first do no harm. Right. So if it's FDA approved, that meant to get FDA approval, a pharmacologic agent has to go through different phases of clinical trial. Right. Phase one is a very little trial with about 10 patients done at a single site. And the question being asked is, is this going to harm the patient population? Mm -hmm. So that's the phase one trial. If the answer is no, we mm -hmm. don't have any side effects, it moves to a phase two trial where you can have a few more, a couple of sites and a few more patients. Mm -hmm. And in a phase two trial, you're testing for efficacy to see if it does what you think it's going to do. Mm -hmm. Finally, if that works, then you'd go to a phase three trial where you enlist multiple institutions and you can get your drug company involved because this mm -hmm. is very expensive yeah. and see if this intervention is efficacious. Um, that's very time intensive, it's very, mm -hmm. very expensive, um, which is why it takes a long time for things to get to the market. Now where a lot of interventions get into trouble is in the phase one trial, mm -hmm. there are contraindications that some of uh, people withhold, and something like the um, COX-2 inhibitor Vioxx, mm -hmm. they got into trouble because they withheld information right. in terms of cardiac outcomes. And unfortunately, that was taken off the market. And it is unfortunate. I think that would have been a very useful anti-inflammatory mediator for acute and subacute, not only spinal cord injury, mm -hmm. but brain injury as well. We are here on the Gulf Coast, and mm -hmm. one way I can explain what happens after spinal cord and brain injury is that you have an excitatory and inflammatory hurricane. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It's not a tropical storm. It's a hurricane. Mm -hmm. So you have to hit it with, if you will, a lot of strength to counteract what's happening at the molecular level. And you have to do that acutely and in the next few weeks while the storm is happening. Mm -hmm. And then when it subsides, there are long-lasting effects that we can look at in the chronic. Right. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Um, and yeah, I think uh, the ongoing collaboration between researchers and clinicians and is going to be uh, very important. Absolutely. And thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity to talk to people in the public domain. Thank you, Dr. Hausbach, for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for joining in. This is Dekarnal Tunian. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.